sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. This is an emergency episode. As you may know, we recently had a hearing on two of the Biden administration's efforts to curb the pandemic and to stop the spread of the coronavirus in various workplaces. Well, today, January 13th, we got a decision on those two mandates from the court. So, Leah, were we surprised or did we call this? I think this was very much foreseen in an extremely Cassandra-like fashion. Not only did we say the court was going to invalidate the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's policy requiring testing or vaccines in the workplace, um, but also there was a possibility the court might uphold the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services requirement that healthcare workers at federally funded facilities um, get vaccinated. And that's what the court ended up doing. The court stayed the OSHA rule that requires employers to either have testing or vaccination regimes, and then it displaced the stays that had prevented the CMS rule, allowing the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to require their employees to get vaccinated. Um, And I think we also kind of predicted the grounds on which the court was going to stay the OSHA rule too. So maybe let's quickly summarize um, those grounds and then talk next steps or what to make of these decisions. Sounds good. Should we maybe start with, you know, just sort of setting the scene? So the OSHA rule is struck down in a per curiam opinion, right? So there's no noted author. Um, it struck me as a Roberts opinion. What did you guys think about the authorship I thought it before was we get Roberts to the substance? Too. You guys agree? So I, I, I think it's possibly Justice Kavanaugh, oh, um, but I think it's one of those two. Yeah. So, so we don't know, right? We're just speculating. Um, but there's a separate concurrence that does have an author attached to it, Gorsuch, joined by Thomas and Alita. We will definitely Surprising talk about no that. One. No. Surprising <laughs> no one. We're going to talk about that one. Don't worry. So let's talk about the basis insofar as it is discernible on which the per curiam <laughs> court uh, held that the OSHA rule uh, needed to be set aside. I mean, I guess just is that even though the OSH, <laughs> the, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, um, gives broad authority to, the, uh, to OSHA, that broad authority wasn't broad enough to support OSHA's you know, test or vax policy for employers of 100 or more employees, largely because COVID 
does not solely spread in <laughs> the workplace. That seemed to be the basic logic of the opinion. Did I miss something? No, I think that's exactly right. Um, even though OSHA has health in its title, like it, it's there to deal with questions of health in the workplace, the court determined that because COVID is about health, but is not confined to the workplace, it is beyond the scope of OSHA. So it was basically, hey, agency, stay in your lane, um, deal with machines that can kill people in the workplace, deal with bloodborne pathogens in certain industries, but stay away from COVID, perhaps the most existential health crisis that we have seen in a generation. That's not for you, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Yeah. So what the court says is that OSHA is addressing a threat that is untethered, comma, in any causal sense from the workplace. And just to play out some of the possible implications of this theory, I mean, I could, you know, be injured by a tractor in at home in Minnesota. Can OSHA not regulate tractors? You know, I could be injured by a fire. Can OSHA not regulate fire hazards, because that is something that exists outside the workplace. Um, the possible implications of this theory are unclear. It's also completely unmoored from the actual statute. Um, nothing restricts OSHA to just regulating hazards that exist solely in the workplace. Um, that is just the majority's gloss on this statute. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think we should, when we get to the dissent, which is so like fire, 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 this dissent. Um, I think we can talk about how, why the statute so clearly does authorize what OSHA did here. Um, but I will say that when the per curiam opinion does cite from the statute that empowers OSHA, I thought it was really telling that there was this kind of editing that kept happening, which is the throwing of italics yeah. into the statutory <laughs> excerpts to underscore workplace, employment. So, so you, you, I mean, you know, so occupational safety, they italicize occupational, provide safer, healthful employment, emphasis added. So they sort of acknowledge, um, and it's not adding words to the statute, but it is clearly throwing emphasis that doesn't actually exist in the statute itself. But right. So, so basically that is, that is the thrust of the objection that the per curiam majority identifies that though OSHA clearly has authority to regulate workplaces and though COVID clearly does spread wildly in workplaces because it also spreads elsewhere, that undermines the authority of OSHA to regulate as it is regulated. And a couple of other points maybe about the per curiam opinion. The opening characterizing this as a vaccine mandate was so disingenuous, right? A vac this is a vaccination mandate. And then at the end of the opening paragraph, subject to an exception, like, you know, if you test or mask. And it's like, as we said in our debrief of the argument, that is just an inaccurate characterization of what this rule purports to do. It is a test or vax mandate. And I think the majority just begins by completely mischaracterizing what it is OSHA has done here. I just want to highlight again the absurdity of an institution that has really robust protections for curbing the spread of the coronavirus within its own walls, weighing in on whether an agency that has delegated authority from Congress can offer the same kinds of protections for ordinary Americans. I mean, like this is like counter-majoritarianism run amok. A couple of other things to highlight. One, um, 
in our, again, in our debrief of the arguments, we shouted out Leah's excellent debunking anti-novelty article. And indeed, the, one of the substantive objections that the per curiam raised about this mandate was that never before has OSHA sought to do anything quite like it, right? OSHA has never Leah, before imposed- did you drink when you read that? Did you drink? It was just like, you know, I I know that there are real galaxy brains serving on the Supreme Court, but the idea that it is suspect because OSHA hasn't tried to impose a vaccine requirement before when there hasn't been a pandemic like this before during OSHA's tenure is just, it's absurd. It is an argument that refutes itself merely when you describe it. And yet they think this is... And this is, you know, part of their argument against the OSHA policy. Well, I mean, and another thing that was also kind of a dynamic evident in the oral arguments that I think you saw in the opinion was that there was this sort of suggestion that there was something nefarious afoot in that the OSHA, uh, that the OSHA rule followed and was part of a more comprehensive federal government-wide policy to incentivize mm-hmm. and increase and, in some instances, require as one option vaccination like you know this was all leading up to vaccinations and vaccinations was the boogeyman and maybe we should have been on alert from the Dobbs oral argument when Justice Barrett made that comparison between vaccinations and abortion (laughs) um but but yes I, I think you're right like what this really is about is not providing options to secure workplace but like requiring everyone to get this vaccine. But there's some, yeah. something, it's some kind of gotcha that the federal government yeah. is focused on trying to keep people from catching a sometimes deadly virus. Like, yeah, I mean, I think it it's right. Like the, very the, Fox News, like this, like, you know, yeah. the vaccine has a microchip in it. And once you have it, you can, like, you're going to be a 5G You can't do anything tower. about it. It's permanent. <laughs> right, yeah, um, you can't, yeah. Like, yeah. So, so just to recap, the per curiam's reasoning is one, COVID isn't related to the workplace. Um, A nice contrast or test to that argument is the fact that the Supreme Court's own website says, out of a concern for the health and safety of Supreme Court employees, the Supreme Court building will be closed to the public until further notice. Checkmate, I don't know who, um, but, you know, that's a first argument. Second is that OSHA hasn't previously imposed vaccination or testing regimen like this, i.e. it's new. And the last and final argument that we should end on, because I think it will segue into the Gorsuch concurrence, is the so-called major question doctrine, which we have previously discussed on our debrief episode, as well as others. The major questions doctrine is the idea that if Congress wanted to authorize the agency to do something major, i.e. like this vaccination and testing regimen, it would have clearly authorized the agency to do so in a statute. Um, And those are the three grounds. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. 
Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Calling all Crooked Media fans, we need your feedback, and we're 100% prepared to bribe you for it. This is a new way for those of you who love Crooked content and our mission to make your voices heard. It's your chance to influence everything from merch designs to our digital content to what Lovett eats for lunch. Okay, I guess. That last part's a joke, obviously. He's ordering Panda Express again and no one can stop him. That's I'm true, reading that's this. True, that's true. Did they not know I was going to read this? <laughs> Here's how it works. Just fill out a survey about your Crooked podcast preferences and you're in. We'll reach out to you when we need your opinion, and you'll get a promo code to the Crooked store every time you participate. So sign up, help us out, because Tommy gets scared when you show up at his gym to tell him about your t-shirt ideas. That is true. It was a good idea, though. Go to crooked.com slash insiders to join today. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. It's, it's a limit on Chevron deference because if under ordinary Chevron deference, the agency where the statute is ambiguous would have the authority to interpret it in the manner that it sees fit. So this is like a carve out for cases that are deemed major questions. Well, it used to be, but I think it's now well, a standalone doctrine that has, is completely oh yeah. independent of Chevron. You're not supposed to give it all away at the beginning of the podcast. Right. Okay. Okay. We'll get to the Gorsuch. But yes, but, 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 and without really identifying this doctrine by name, the Procurium says, look, we expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance, again, citing Alabama realtors, the case involving the CDC eviction moratorium, another shadow docket case, clearly making important law. The court says there can be little doubt that OSHA's mandate qualifies as an exercise of such authority. Does the act authorize the secretary's mandate. It does not. And then sort of circling back to the fact that OSHA doesn't have, at least as the per curiam majority reads the statute, broad, you know, health regulatory authority rather than just this kind of workplace specific authority. But yes, we should segue maybe to the Gorsuch concurrence, which does much more to develop this sort of new major questions doctrine on steroids, which is, I think, what we're now facing. Do you not get the vibe that this Gorsuch concurrence is like you know, like when you take your dog out and he pees around things that he wants to mark as his own. That's that you know, Gorsuch is just like destroying the administrative state. That's, that's my mine. beat. That's, that's mine. my beat. Right? When, you, when you think of destroying the administrative state, you think of Neil Gorsuch. Exactly. 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 I will say, I don't think 
or at least Shadow does. I don't think female dogs do it quite the same way. I don't know if Stevie does. Oh, but Stevie Shad- pisses does, does. all around the neighborhood yeah. to mark her territory. Oh my God, Shadow is like this extremely dignified lady who just like goes for walks, takes one long pee in a place she carefully selects, and then goes on with her day. Like she just doesn't do the marking thing. She's the RBG of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she's just transported from place to place in True. silk pantsuits. Like... <laughs> No. Okay. Back okay. to Neil. Okay. To so Neil. Neil Gorsuch is not content to let this per curiam opinion demolish the Biden administration's major initiative to curb the spread of COVID. He's like, no, no, no. I need to stake my own ground for how to do so, as well as how to constrain the administrative state slash debilitate it um, for all perpetuity. So what is this concurrence about? What does Gorsuch kind of lay out? As he attempted to do unsuccessfully at oral argument, he's like, let me tell you what this case is about. It's about who decides. And it's not about the courts deciding. It's about Congress and the agencies. And sometimes the courts deciding that Congress as opposed to the agencies. Like, that was the second part. And he throws in the states, because really when it came down to it, if if Congress tried to do this through statute, like, who knows? I doubt he would let it stand. But so it's really, I think, the states of anyone that he thinks has the authority to do this. But he says Congress or the states, but certainly not these unelected bureaucrats. That is very interesting, Kate, because he does spend a lot of time talking about the sort of general state police power to legislate in favor of public welfare and public health. At no point will he cite Jacobson, the 1905 case, that would be the perfect precedent for such a proposition. So I, again, the amount of staying on mission that was involved in this opinion is really admirable. So yes, who decides, pee in a circle around it and do not cite Jacobson. All of those vibes were hit. So uh, just to unpack this a little bit, because I want to make clear again something we discussed on the debrief episode that I think is important to underscore, the idea that it is not the court deciding whether this is a proper policy is, I think, just belied by the majority's actual reasoning in the procurium. I mean, the major questions doctrine itself is about the idea that the law, the law governing what agencies can do, should be different when an agency does something involving a major question and whether something is major or not is inescapably and inextricably linked with what the policy is and a judgment about the underlying policy. I mean, you need only compare what the majority says at one point in the procurium when it's like, it's not our role to weigh such trade-offs when it's talking about balancing the equities with the end of the opinion when it says requiring the the vaccination of 84 million Americans selected simply because they work for employers certainly falls in the latter category of major questions. Like that's the extent of their analysis. And it's just normative hand-waving about their intuitions about the underlying policy. And and, and the, one of the ways you know that they have reverse-engineered a set of explanations around a kind of perf- a policy outcome that a majority of them favor is a line in which, so Leah, you were just talking about the major questions doctrine. There's then a segue from the discussion in the Gorsuch opinion of the major questions doctrine to the non-delegation doctrine, which the court, which the Gorsuch opinion says, look, these two are closely related, um, you know, for decades. In fact, courts, <laughs> now they look almost yeah, identical. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so what space there is between them, I think, is a big question coming out of this opinion. But after sort of saying, basically, the major questions doctrine is a way to enforce 
the kind of separation of powers values embedded in the non-delegation doctrine, right? The idea that there is a limit on the on how much a power Congress can give to agencies at all, not just how clear it has to be in doing it, but how much it can do it at all, consistent with the Constitution and the separation of powers. Um, but after sort of saying, you know, waving a hand at the major questions doctrine and then waving a hand at the non-delegation doctrine, the opinion says, whichever the doctrine, the point is the same, which is literally like, LOL, you lose. That's the point. <laughs> exactly. Like, it doesn't matter how I destroy the administrative state. The point is I got there eventually. Yep. Right? Like, any stick to beat a dog. Yep. Um, like, I think it's more than just any stick will do, but like, the confluence of two sticks means like, we'll get it done in half the time. Um and to the point of the major questions, Doctor, I, mean, I think if you think sort of as a practical matter, any major issue that an administrative agency would undertake or that Congress would task an agency with undertaking is going to necessarily be something huge, like income inequality, climate change, um, universal health care. And they're basically saying whether it's through the non-delegation doctrine or through this major questions doctrine, none of it can fly. So it's like basically kneecapping with both knees any sort of effort to address these massive existential problems that we face as a society. Right. Ambitious yeah. efforts, regulatory, yeah. are, are, are like, basically Tinker doomed. at the edges, yep. but don't do anything major. Yeah. Right. Um, and it, it's also important, I think, to situate this in the political context, which is in a world with the filibuster, where Congress really isn't enacting major legislation, to the extent we get policy changes, they are going to go through administrative agencies and the court is just dismantling the administrative state and kneecapping, you know, Democrats' ability to address climate change, address COVID, address whatever through the mechanisms they actually have to do so. Um, okay, before we get to the dissent, I just feel like I wish we had Roger Jean here to read the ending of the Gorsuch I thought you were going to say, I wish we had Roger Jean here to do something else. <laughs> I was like, I was like, after, after the recording stops. Um, no, so, so I'm happily married. I don't know about you. Um, I feel like you have previously stepped in to fill his shoes with respect to, with, with, in, in reading some of the Gorsuch excerpts. The, the end of the opinion, respecting those demands. I mean, I, I'm happy to try. I won't do it justice, but I do think that this is like, this goes in, you know, this is the you know, constitutional as opposed to statutory Gorsuch, you know, sort of greatest hits burn book, but um, respecting, but, but let me give it a shot. The, he's talking about the demands of the constitution as he understands You have to have a really deep it. voice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Respecting those demands may be trying in times of stress, but if this court were to abide them only in more tranquil conditions, declarations of emergencies would never end and the liberties our constitution separation of power seeks to preserve would amount to little. So basically, this concurrence is like a constitutional gin and tonic, just to take the edge off, calm you down, so you don't do anything crazy, yeah. like try and deal with a global pandemic. Right. Or like a comet, a planet killer comet, like flying at Earth. <laughs> okay. We have to acknowledge that tweet. David Knowles. David Knowles ex excellent. Of Rutgers is totally <laughs> he won Twitter. The, he won Twitter one today. Twitter. One Twitter. David Knoll, well played. We're sending you something. We don't know what, okay. but we're sending Let you something. Let me read the tweet. It it's says, so good. Don't Look Up was really good, but for the sake of accuracy, it should have had the Supreme Court stay NASA's attempt to divert the asteroid. Boom. Boom. <laughs> like, that's amazing. I was just imagining the last line of that Gorsuch opinion, which is something like, if the court does not enforce the Constitution in the face of a planet killer event, none of us is truly free. Right? <laughs> is it even worth it? Like, 
this is Neil Gorsuch being like, well, but actually the Constitution is a suicide pact, yeah, yeah, right? No, it is. When I think about it. <laughs> give right? me liberty and give me yeah. death. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, real, like I said, real galaxy brain vibes. Um, <laughs> well played, David Knoll. Rutgers is lucky to have you. One additional thing on the Gorsuch concurrence before we go on to the dissent. Um, I can't help but note, we have this pre-recorded um, episode with two of my colleagues, Julian Mortensen and Nick Bagley, about their fantastic historical work debunking the basis of the non-delegation doctrine. Um, you mentioned, Melissa, the mission like orientation and vibe of this Gorsuch concurrence. And I think his citation and engagement with the academic literature is further evidence of that, not even deigning to acknowledge the in-depth historical work that Julian, Nick, and Nick Perillo have done, suggesting there is zero historical basis for the non-delegation doctrine. He's just like, let me cite a bunch of my friends. And like, they're cool with it. And to be clear, the article that should have been cited is called Delegation at the Founding, and it appears in the Columbia Law Review by Nicholas Bagley and Julian Mortensen. Um, and again, the fact that it wasn't mentioned is really just an attention to the mission. Okay. Um, Should we go on uh, to the dissent? Let's the, go on to the dissent. Unusual joint dissent, right? It doesn't yeah. identify an author. And I feel like there were people on Twitter describing this as a Breyer dissent. And I was like, no, it is not. He is on it. But it is authored by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Speaking with one voice. Yeah. For I mean, a change. Yeah, yes. I was. I mean, it's look, there's some famous, you know, the Casey opinion, like McConnell versus FEC, the NFIB dissent. Like, there are, of course, examples of not, you know, of of multiple author opinions, but there there are very few and far between. So this is significant. I mean, a lot of it seems like clearly Kagan, but I'm sure that they that they probably wrote different parts. Yeah, and, um, and basically, so- the energy from this was Jennifer Lawrence's character in Don't Look Up, like. <laughs> That was the energy of this opinion, right? You should stay away crying every single night. See, I saw a movie movie, you guys over the break. So this is amazing. We're both like agog. It was so good. Um, um, So maybe we can just cover kind of two points of the dissent. Um, One is the point Kate alluded to previously, which is the dissent analysis for why this policy was clearly authorized by the statute um, and the agency you know, had the authority to enact it. And the second is the closing, um, which a bunch of people have already highlighted. So does one of you want to kind of summarize the statutory analysis? Yeah, I mean, I I just think this is the only opinion that actually engages with the text of the statute that gives authority to OSHA. And it just makes clear both that the fact that this was promulgated as an emergency temporary standard, which the court doesn't actually use that as a basis on which to set the rule aside, but is clearly really skeptical that it would satisfy. It's like, eh, you know, sort of alludes to independent problems with this having been done as this ETS and satisfying the ETS standard. But more specifically, as to the substantive statutory authority that OSHA has under the statute, This opinion alone really engages with the text and I think says extremely clearly that OSHA has the authority to regulate workplaces, um, you know, to to regulate workplaces, to prevent workplace harm, to regulate new hazards. That indeed it has not only the authority but the duty to act to address and mitigate workplace harms. Um, And so it's not even a close question that there's statutory authority here. So there's also some real pettiness in this opinion. So on page 12, toward the end, someone, 
of this three-person triumvirate um, notes, underlying everything else in this dispute is a single simple question, Neil. Who decides how much protection and of what kind American workers need from COVID-19? I think Justice Sotomayor or Elena Kagan put that in. Yeah, um, I don't really see that emanating from Justice Breyer. From the pen. pen. No, no. <laughs> um, but I, I, was, I was there for the snark. I appreciated the snark. And, and they note, um, who do we charge with this kind of question? Like, is it an agency with expertise in workplace health and safety acting as Congress and the president authorized? Or is it a court lacking any knowledge of how to safeguard workplaces? Have you seen this guy to my right without <laughs> right, exactly? <laughs> or is it to my left? Who cares? Um, and insulated from responsibility for any damage it causes. And that I thought was the Elena Kagan line. What did you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that Neil Gorsuch insists on continuing to go maskless in the workplace is pretty good evidence about why OSHA needs to regulate the risk of COVID in the workplace, because you work with people who make bad decisions and do things that needlessly expose you and your colleagues to COVID. Um, so that's one piece of the dissent, just the statutory analysis of how this statute doesn't speak about dangers that only are in the workplace or dangers that are uniquely caused by the workplace, but instead just talks about dangers and risks in the workplace, which COVID assuredly is. I know we, we talked a little bit about Justice Gorsuch being unmasked in the last oral arguments. Um, he was also unmasked in the arguments this week, which Justice Sotomayor continued to participate in remotely. And Justice Breyer also participated remotely one day, but that was because he had a false positive test and did not come in for that reason. But there, there's a lot of energy in showing up to work unmasked when you have a colleague with a chronic health condition seated immediately to one side of you and then writing this concurrence. Like there's just like the shamelessness of it is kind of staggering. I mean, I'm not sure if it's shamelessness, obliviousness. I'm not sure how I would describe it, but it's something. Or, well, or the cruelty is the point, right? Just all of it. Um, anyway. Yeah. And I mean, not only I think does the does this opinion make extremely clear how grounded in the statute this action was, it also answers this novelty objection, right? If the standard is far-reaching, yeah, it applies to many millions of American workers. But also, you know, it has receipts for plenty of other OSHA actions that have been very sweeping. But admittedly, this is unique. But so too is this crisis, right? So she says it, right. I'm saying she because this feels like a, a Kagan paragraph to me. But the opinion says, you know, if the standard is far-reaching, it no more than reflects the scope of the, of the crisis. The standard responds to a workplace health emergency unprecedented in the agency's history. So yeah, it's not going to take action that's going to have a precise analog with previous action. That's not a problem. So then I think the second part of the joint dissent that we wanted to highlight was the closing, um, which ends with some really pointed language about what the court has done. Um, so as we noted, um, you know, it has this language about how underlying everything else in this dispute is a single simple question, who decides? Um, but then there is also this remarkable passage where the joint dissenters say, when we are wise, we know not to displace the judgments of experts. 
acting within the sphere Congress marked out and under presidential control to deal with emergency conditions. Today, we are not wise. And, you know, I mean, I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. Like, they just blew up, you know, the administration's efforts to contain COVID in the workplace. You know, maybe the policy wasn't perfectly suited to Omicron, but it surely would have helped, you know, contain COVID in important respects. Yeah, and I mean, I almost... I don't want to belabor it, but there's a couple sentences after the ones that you just read, Leah, that I feel like are also kind of worth reading. She, she accuses the court. She again feels <laughs> like I'm hearing Kagan, but it's the the, the joint dissent. Um, the, the dissent says today we are not wise, and then says really starkly in the face of a still raging pandemic, the court tells the agency charged with protecting worker safety that it may not do so in all the workplaces needed as disease and death continue to mount. The court tells the agency it cannot respond in the most effective way possible without legal basis, as we have been saying. The court usurps a decision that rightfully belongs to others. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that without legal basis is a deliberate and very forceful choice. But I do think that lawless is the right way to describe the court here. It is a lawless yeah. decision that throws around legal terminology and doctrine, right. but is fundamentally an exercise of raw power. And this is just like a difficult pill to swallow that this court has now disabled a really important COVID mitigation measure and hobbled the administration, I think, going forward in response to whatever the next wave or waves of COVID might look like and across a range of other policy areas that we've been talking about, obviously, you know, climate change. Way to keep it light and optimistic. Yes. <laughs> well, so so before we go on to the CMS opinion, um, I, I just want to follow through with that because I agree with you, this opinion is lawless. Um, and I also agree with you, it's an exercise of raw power. This is the court essentially showing its hand and materializing the risk we all warned about, which is you have this Republican controlled court that is essentially putting itself in a position to just veto um, whatever democratically enacted um, and large D Democrat policies um, it doesn't like. And this has some real historical analogs that I know, I know, I know, I know. And the question is, like, what's going to happen? So maybe let's talk about some of those historical analogs and then speculate, like, is the administration going to do something? Are they going to change their posture to the Supreme Court? So, so can I answer in the form of a question? You know that's allowed. <laughs> what is sector poultry in Panama oil? Okay, so... That's one set of possible options um, for those of you. Well, that was who the historical taken. analog I thought you were. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I would just want to offer some other historical analogs. Um, so the decisions that Melissa noted were decisions by the Supreme Court that invalidated President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's signature New Deal policies that were designed to ease human suffering and get us out of the Great Depression. Um, and also, an existential crisis for the country. Exactly. Um, and FDR, you know, turned around and proposed his famous court packing plan um, in order to allow him to have a court that would allow him to actually address the Great Depression. Um, yeah. Big F around and find out energy. Exactly. President Roosevelt. From FDR. Um, like putting uh, the F in FDR. <laughs> um, so that's one historical analog. But honestly, I wanted to flag two others. Um and they're also kind of in that same era. Um, and that's Hammer versus Dagenhart and Lochner versus New York. You know, Hammer versus Dagenhart was a decision where the court attempted to limit 
Congress's power to only regulate those entities that it and activities that it viewed as like inherently dangerous. Um, and of course, that was just like a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the court is somewhat imposing that onto the OSHA regime. OSHA can only regulate those things that are like inherently dangerous in the workplace. Um, and that's a little weird. And then Lochner, I mean, in this decision, the OSHA case, the court has said, well, COVID is a risk that exists in mo- most workplaces. It's not an occupational hazard. And Lochner is the infamous decision where the court invalidated New York's minimum wage and maximum hour legislation on bakers on the ground that that wasn't a concern unique to bakers. And, you know, New York hadn't shown that this was actually a danger in the workplace. Um, And meaningfully, both of those cases, I mean, the cases are both of a piece. Um, You know, one obviously focuses on congressional power through the Commerce Clause, that's Hammer versus Dagenhart. The other focuses on state level police power, and that's Lochner. Um, And both of them are ultimately overruled by the New Deal court, Hammer versus Dagenhart in um, Darby Lumber and um, Lochner in West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. And, but it's after the court, completely scared by the prospect of court packing, allegedly, um, where one justice, one Owen Roberts, switches his vote, um, becomes the switch in time that saves nine and, and saves the New Deal. And so well, that's the an optimistic is, prediction of the trajectory that we're on. Well, though, so. I mean, like, I will just note, there are two Justice Roberts in play, right? I mean, the difference, of course, is there were four you horsemen. Five one, five yeah, now we right have now. five horsemen. The real difference. Yeah. Uh, also, I think, again, the F around and find out energy of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I don't know that Joe Biden, big institutionalist, is really in that camp. Yeah, I mean, I... I think it's certainly the case that the that there is big Lochner court energy in the Gorsuch concurrence. Um, it's I think dialed back slightly in the per curiam opinion, but I think that 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 the sort of the deeper question that you're posing is a court that is this far out of step with majoritarian preferences, both in the federal legislature and in state legislatures. How long can that tension endure, yeah. and will the executive branch actually? you know, use its significant both rhetorical and actual powers vis-a-vis the court in any meaningful way. You know, we obviously haven't seen anything suggesting that it's going, that the Biden administration is going to to this point, but but will this shift that dynamic? I just think people should be really horrified by what happened here. Um, as we were saying, like, here... The, the- uh, well, here, okay, fair, fair. Like, back there, like <laughs> no. coming up, a lot longer landscape. But this decision in particular, like the reasons the court gave for invalidating this policy, are just so utterly specious, specious. and absurd and gaslighting. And this decision will have severe consequences. And you know, are we just going to be like, yeah, you know, this is just how things are going to be for? here until the end of the world? I mean, <laughs> well, to be really clear, um, there are going to be a lot of workplaces who will privately, without any requirement from a government or whatever, will undertake these kinds of protections to protect their workers. But 
again, that's not all workplaces. And it's, it's those gaps that allow this to be perpetuated and to continue and we'll never get out of it, or at least it won't be as quick as we would like it to be. Um, you know, that's sort of the question. I mean, I have been thinking about the marriage equality debate and just sort of how you had private enterprise sort of take the lead on some of these things. But then ultimately, the baton was picked up by the state, whether it was state level governments and then eventually the federal government refusing to um, defend the Defense of Marriage Act. You see private entities taking up the baton here, but then you have a court that it really is deeply, deeply skeptical of regulation, just saying like, no, like the government can't make you do anything. Like if you want to do that privately, fine. It just means that, you know, maybe workers need to take the initiative to press their workplaces to do these things independently of the government. And, you know, that's a harder road to hoe. And I think the horrifying thing is there are governments, some governments that are stopping workplaces from instituting those policies. And this court isn't going to do a darn thing about that. That is, they are allowing states to ban mask mandates and ban vaccination requirements in private employers. And, you know, there is definitely a selective concern with government regulation. Well, I mean, and it it goes both ways. Like, you must come to work and show up and do these things for productivity, but we can't mandate these things to secure your safety because it would cut into productivity, like cut into the bottom line. I mean, it's all terribly circular. Um, And again, just to reiterate something we said earlier in the, when we debrief the oral argument, this case against the OSHA mandate was brought by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, the same group of small business owners, like small business interest group that brought you the challenge to the Affordable Care Act, the first challenge to the Affordable Care Act. So maybe to end on an optimistic note, we can turn briefly to the decision in the CMS case. And again, the court is allowing the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to enforce its requirement that employees at federally funded healthcare facilities get vaccinated and not kill their patients. Woohoo! So the opening, or at least part of the reasoning in the decision, seemed to channel the formulation that Justice Kagan had of this case. So the majority in the CMS case basically invokes the Hippocratic Oath, saying the healthcare worker rule um, you know, fits neatly within the language of the statute. After all, ensuring that providers take steps to avoid transmitting a dangerous virus to their patients is consistent with the fundamental principle of the medical profession. First, do no harm. And of course, at oral argument, Justice Kagan had said, well, look, all CMS is doing is telling employees at federally funded healthcare facilities, at a minimum, you can't kill your patients by transmitting COVID to them. And it seems like that articulation um, had some traction in getting both um, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh to join the Democratic appointees and conclude that CMS had the authority to enact this rule. Um, As that lineup suggests, the decision was 5-4 with Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett dissenting. And I think that last piece that Justice Barrett joined the dissenters is the most interesting and I think worrying one. Um, The idea that Justice Barrett would be to the right of 
Justice Kavanaugh on issues of administrative law is, um, you know, uh, I think that is really going to pose some challenges um, for the administrative state going forward. Um, And it, to my mind, uh, suggests that the EPA's efforts to regulate climate change um, are definitely not going to be long for this world. Because if Justice Barrett is with Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito on the CMS rule, again, the rule basically telling employees at federally funded healthcare facilities you can't kill your workers, um, uh, she is going to be inclined to do pretty aggressive things in other administrative law cases as well. It's not just abortion. She's got range. She's got range. <laughs> we should say on administrative law issues, she wasn't as much of a known quantity coming out to the right. court as, as Kavanaugh was, where Kavanaugh had a lot exactly. of years in the D.C. Circuit or and had Gorsuch. written quite a bit Gorsuch as well. They had sort of staked out these positions and sort of identities. Peed as... in a circle around them, as it were. <laughs> uh, she had not. Right. And, and then she decided to take a, you know, take a lap around the fire hydrant here and be like, you know what? This one's on Leonard Leo's to-do list. Um, and that means it's on mine too. So Talk to let's your girl. do the damn thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm Call your girl. girl. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, so that was sort of optimistic, I think. Um, you know, healthcare workers have to be vaccinated. That's good. Uh, the spending clause seems intact. No one seems to be ready to take that on. Justice Gorsuch soon. says, watch this space. Uh, Wasn't expecting Justice Barrett to show up for this, for this project. But, you know, it has been an unexpected year and it's only 13 days in. So I just had one additional thought about the major questions doctrine that I need to put in this episode and find to have it as the closer. So I just realized the majority's per curiam opinion in the OSHA case has real Ron Burgundy kind of vibes. Like, this is kind of a big deal, right? Seems like to me, this is kind of a big deal. It smells of leather bound books and rich mahogany. So pretty sure that's invalid. Like, this is like Ron Burgundy you know, enters the Supreme Court one first street. Um, anyways, that's that's just my conception of of this decision. Take that. You came in late, Leah, but you won the Zoom. That was amazing. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us for this emergency episode of Strict Scrutiny. Again, we're sorry that we have so many emergency episodes. Don't blame us. Blame the court. And we will continue keeping you up to date on all of this. Once again, we are grateful to all of our listeners who have supported us and continue to support us we think you all are great thank you and thank you so much to the wonderful Catherine fink who substitute produced this episode on very short notice we really appreciate it we will talk to you all soon so stay tuned Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required, no minimum purchase required. See store for details.